Thank you for listening to The Spectator podcast. We've got a new offer. You can get a free Brexit butterfly mug, as well as 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12, if you subscribe at spectator.co.uk forward slash mug. Hello and welcome to the Books Club podcast of The Spectator. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of the magazine, and this week my guest is Olivia Fain, a novelist and writer whose new book is called Why Sex Doesn't Matter, which is an attempt, as she puts it, to debunk sex, which will be a great provocation to many listeners and a great relief to Mrs Leith. Olivia, you're on the face of it, you have history biology and human behaviour ranged up on the other side of your argument. How do you think you overcome this? Oh, my goodness. They are not on the other side. We're just talking about the last hundred years, where it's all become love and sex are one, love and sex are together, and sex is so important and profound. You say history is weighted against me. History is on my side. Actually, I discovered it was quite how much it was about 25 years ago. I was in the University Library of Cambridge reading an incredibly boring Latin text, and on the table in front of me was a book called A Woman's Place, far more interesting than mine. And the first thing I read is about Victorian love. Now, Victorian love, I really was taken by this. I am an unconditional romantic, and it's all about finding your soulmate, inhabiting the same space as your partner, revealing all your naughtinesses, confessing your worst sins and becoming as one. And what's interesting about these love letters, if you so much as said, oh, I just think your auburn hair is so beautiful. <gasps> I think you want sex with me. I think, I think it's a bit carnal, your love. And so, no, history is not, is not. And the next thing I discover about this, there is a moment when it actually... The First World War, this is it. This is when it all takes off. So, at the end of the First World War, there is a real problem in America. Divorce rate has escalated to 7%. Now, the economic bond has broken because what women have been able to do in the war is drive tractors and buses and be economically independent. They don't know what to do about it. And literally, it goes right up to the White House. What should we do? How are we going to keep marriages together? Well, it's so. Well, when women have the potential to yes, escape. Yes, exactly. From. They certainly were doing that in droves. So, what they decided, and it literally was great, it was all the sociologists, the social sciences, the sexologists all got together and they said, oh my goodness, what are we going to do to keep marriages what how are we going to persuade women and men to stay together and they said we shall make sex the new bond we shall say that is the core of a marriage anyway there was a great discussion about this how this would work they got terribly excited because at the time there was a problem with prostitution and they thought ah well you know if we got women to be more saucy and sexy was there a problem with prostitution there was i mean was this a recent thing uh, well, no, it, it, was, it was particularly bad at that yeah. time. It was the oldest profession. It was particularly bad at that time. And they kept on trying to clear up 
you know, the street corners, etc. And um, what do they say? Prostitutes the sacrifice at the altar of marriage. That was a sort of phrase. We must get rid of this. We must get the wives to do more in bed. And we must, you know, because in fact, in Victorian times, there was all this advice. You could have sex any sort of two 10-minute periods a week. You certainly mustn't do anything else but, um, you know, the most straightforward heterosexual sex. Nothing else allowed. And that wasn't enough for men. Men wanted more than that. And possibly So also, the Victorians didn't have it right, or the Victorians uh, did no, have it right? No, th- that might have been a problem. It might have been wrong, because in fact it turned out that a lot of women actually would have liked more sex than that, and a lot of men would have liked um, more sex than that. And then what happened was they said, we'll get the women to get more saucy in bed. How are we going to persuade them to do that? We've got a really good idea. We will persuade them that love and sex are one and belong completely together. Now, women love love. If you're told that, you believe it. And that's how it all kind of began. But the social sciences all got round the table again and said, well, there's one really big problem with this because we all know that fanciable women are young and beautiful with lovely hair and we all know that women get old and they get less attractive when they get older. What are we going to do about it? So it was literally the can-do spirit of America. They said, we can get women to take better care of their bodies. We can invent lotions and potions. We can advertise an incredible proliferation in beauty parlours. So this was something in your account of it that started as a sort of sociological, social project to try and prevent marriages from breaking up and turned into a capitalist bonanza. Absolutely like that. And it's a terribly sad thing because now you have, you know, if you are not desirable, you are not lovable. And in your account of it then, if Victorians had it right and you're a classicist by background, so you said the ancients also had it right. They saw sex and love as totally separate Actually, the ancients, the ancients were slightly different. I mean, there's this word, you know, amor, love. It's absolutely to do with desire and loveliness, the delight. It's all done very, very lightly. The Romans didn't love in the way that, uh, you know, we love. We try and love because we listen to our partners and say how day was at office and stuff. They didn't do that. Their, their love was erotic love very, very much, which is concerned with the loveliness, again, and the beauty of the person which you desire. Well, the Greeks had a number of different words for love, didn't they? And that, that sort well, of... you see, that's a really interesting question because obviously the most famous thing is, is, is C.S. Lewis' Four Loves and everyone says, oh, you see, erotic love is love. I don't think that erotic love is love at all. I don't think it even is the first cousin of love. Erotic love, um, you know, and I've been there, I've done that. You know, I know what it's like. You see a handsome face and you say, I want that person. And immediately you think, hey, this person is intelligent and nice and funny. You immediately start projecting all the things that you want of that person into that person because they're handsome. You know, it seems to me, if you are saying that, essentially, erotic love is, as you describe it, as an itch to be scratched, it's something that's entirely preoccupied with surfaces rather than essences, that it's something that's essentially a kind of entirely to do with you yourself. Why is it, then, that in... Which, in your book, you very clearly say is, is, you know, kind of one of the models for how to accommodate it. 
you think it should be confined within Christian marriage? I don't think it should be confined within Christian marriage. I never say that for a moment. I do say, uh, I do quite like, I mean, this is a problem actually that Kant saw. This is Kant's problem, because basically he says that in sex, you use the other person as a thing for your sexual gratification. You know, it becomes this thing. And he talks about um, discarding the ex-lover like a lemon, uh, which I think is absolutely correct. And he says that the only solution is in marriage, where you actually belong to each other to use as you like. You suddenly become each other's property. And I just, I think I wrote in the book that I rather love this idea about belonging to my husband as his thing and him belonging to me as mine. I think it's rather romantic. But that does then give it a place. I'm, I'm trying to, sorry. Think of a place for this. Think that of it gives it a, a space within the reciprocity of a loving relationship. I mean, or, or do, do, you certainly don't seem to lean to the view which your argument seems to push into is that why would we have pair bonding at all? Because the only thing that we uniquely do, you know, at least on the face of it, with people with whom we're married, is have sex as a unique thing. You know, you have friendship, you have intimacy, you have all these other things with any number of people potentially. But the one thing that marriage says, and you know, most conventions of marriage, not just Christian ones, say is you're sexual relation is the thing that makes that a special relationship. Okay, well, there's a history of that, obviously, and that is the history of of contraception. Because basically, of course you had to pair bond. The family was considered the basic stable point in a society. But the second that contraception happened at the beginning of the 20th century, and this is what Havelock Ellis wanted it to happen, they could turn the meaning of sex completely somewhere else. They could say, listen, listen, it would be so great if we had contraception. We'd stop have to think about families. We can divorce it entirely from procreation. We can make it about two people expressing their love for each other. I don't think, you know, sex lends itself to pair bonding at all. I think actually our appetites go everywhere. Um, I wish they didn't. But of course we fancy other people and want to have sex with other people just because we're married. Well, do you think we should? Well, that's a good question. I've had two marriages, and the first marriage actually didn't think it mattered very much. I mean, in the first marriage, we thought sex was pretty meaningless and fun and light, and why not have... You know, I was very, very young at the time, so that was not a a problem. In the second marriage... Um, my husband said to me, listen, fidelity actually really, really matters. And now, actually, I've become quite square, um, having been kind of cool and radical. I've become quite square. But if it is this unimportant thing, why would it matter? Well, do you know what? It still doesn't matter. You've written of your first marriage that where you felt it going apart was when your husband developed an erotic obsession with somebody else. Oh, yes, And that yes, turned yes. into something more profound. Well... If there's no connection... Okay, well, I'd like to tell you about... In that instance, obviously, my first marriage broke up because he he fell erotically in love with another woman. Now, actually, since then, I've sort of done the biology and I understand it. And, uh, you know, sex is absolutely the same as heroin. It's the same as cocaine. You actually get addicted to it. It's a physiological thing. Now, couples with actually liking someone, 
But what I hadn't anticipated was, A, the fact that actually erotic love is a physiological thing. If you look at the medical textbooks, it takes 18 months to get over it, exactly. It is actually something's happening in your brain. And the other Limerence, thing... I think they call it. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And the second thing that happens, which, again, I hadn't anticipated, is some a far more profound intimacy, which is called liking someone. Liking someone wants to be their friend, wants to ask them real questions about um, their lives. You know, this is actually far more profound. Friendship is far more profound uh, than erotic love. And I hadn't anticipated that in my first marriage that he would find both of those simultaneously. And, you know, I'm the, I'm the fool. Would that, that kind of double whammy then of erotic attachment and friendship and maybe the one giving a kind of segue into another be roughly an analogue of what you're talking about in terms of, you know, love. Could well, it's not, not quite, because you rightly said that word limerence. So you have, what well, your one and a half years of this frenzy of excitement, you just want to have sex all the time, and suddenly you don't. And the awful thing is, because our society says that sex and love are so linked in, the second it goes away, you think... Oh, my goodness, are we still that close? Do we still love each other? Oh, something must be terribly wrong because I don't fancy my wife or my husband quite as much as I did. You know what I can't bear, which makes me so angry? It's when these counsellors say things like, oh, if the communication goes badly in your everyday life, you're not going to have good sex. And I just think, what a load of rubbish that is. What I discovered is in 1935, before we had this sort of love and sex are all together, they, they... They wanted to see what effect a good sex life had on a marriage. And guess what they found? Shock, horror. They found that two people with a big libido had better sex than anyone. It was nothing to do with the rest of the marriage. It's to do with lust. And they also discovered that those kind of people are more passionate and more temperamental. And therefore they had more arguments in their marriage. And the conclusions in 1935 was that there was no correlation at all with the quality of sex and the quality of love in a marriage at all. But come 1960s, everything changes. We're all told, oh, it's making love, which of course is Hollywood phrase from about 1958. Absolute lie. Because, you know, like, for example, you know, when that book Fifty Shades of Grey came out, wow, everybody was in bed wanting to be beaten and smacked. That was far sexier than sharing a nappy rotor. Yes, well, there, I mean, certainly the, there is that paradox that you touch on in the book that, you know, I think it was Woody Allen said, if sex isn't dirty, you're oh. not doing well, it I'm right. Well, I think that's you know. true, actually. I really think that sex should be sexy. I don't like, I mean, I'm getting really personal now, but, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not very good at tender sex. I think sex should be rather sexy. I think it is intrinsically transgressive and exciting. So it's the worry that, it, that you know, making it as wholesome as we are, removing all the uh, taboos, is taking all the fun out of I it. I think that's completely right, yes. Yeah, so you see, I'm not terribly Christian after all. <laughs> Where do you think we should, you know, if we acknowledge, right, sex isn't important, it's, or at least it's not profound, it's not connected to love, it's a sort of animal word. Yeah. It's nevertheless, as you acknowledge in the book... It's very powerful, you know, at least apocryphally, it starts the Trojan War. Yes. Any number of yep, yep, yep. political careers yep. ended because of yep. persecution, you know, the momentary desire to have sex overwhelms oh, any sort absolutely. of long term prudence. Absolutely, you know. yeah. 
how do you canalise all this? I mean, well, you know, the Victorians, you, you, you've spoken glowingly of their commitment to, you know, romantic love and the sort of spirits twining and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, Victorian society wasn't without its issues around misogyny and prostitution. Oh, no, and, there's, there's all of that. Is that. That is all absolutely true. But actually, you know what? Last last week I was watching some uh, Truffaut films. I don't know if you know... Um, anyway, he's, he's absolutely a great French um, producer, film producer. And it was interesting. We watched a, a film called um, The Woman Next Door. And it's about a sort of passionate obsession about this this beautiful woman. And the sort of final denouement is uh, in coitus. She gets a revolver and kills them both in this perfect moment and you think oh my goodness was Truffaut making fun of this or did he actually believe that was somehow perfect that these two lovers who are so self-centered it beggars belief were doing this wonderful romantic gesture and the last line is this is the epitaph you know of their relationship they could neither live with each other nor without each other how pathetic is that well, it bears out your, your theory that Freud's opposition between the sex drive and the death drive was actually the wrong way around, that they're the same thing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Actually, I, could, I would like to say that about sex. I mean, that is the fantastic thing about sex, is that you're let off being a person. And I think that's why we all love it. It's sort of deep relaxation, where finally you're not thinking, goodness, I've got to give this in or that in, I've got to do that, I've got to phone, I've got to get the MOT. It's so exhausting having but, a self. But the particular way in which people are interested, I mean, you know, you're very sceptical of the idea that sexuality, that how people, you know, basically who people want to sleep with or how people oh, yes. want to sleep with other people yeah. is in any way important or significant yep. in being constituent, constituent of their personality. But if your kind of preferred escape... You know, if this thing that's a profound drive, that's your preferred escape from the prison of selfhood that's, you know, as important to people for up to 18 months as a kind of drug, the idea that that's somehow entirely separate and ancillary to their personality is a very kind of... When you say and whose personality, I mean, this is the thing, whose personality? It's completely to do with the personality of the person who's feeling these mm. things. Uh, it's nothing to do with the personality of the other. The game is to keep yourself completely... Oh, you know, you know what? I was taught by my darling mother the rules of erotic love when I was still a child. You keep yourself mysterious. You keep yourself away. Uh, you know, well, you don't how your mother always drove you to lose your virginity and, and oh, sort of yeah, dressed you up I, for the purpose. Yeah, I, it I mean, was practically like that. Yes, it was practically like that. That's a little bit sort of funny. But it's like, oh, oh I, know, a I know, I know, I know. Us, you know. But actually, it's quite funny because in, in Mary Stopes uh, as well, her, her sort of book, Married Love. I mean, in fact, what's interesting about her, she wrote her book, it was published in 1920. My grandmother obviously read it. It was a huge bestseller. My, uh, my grandmother sort of told my mother and my mother told me how to do this but again you know i return to this if is as powerful as it is animal instinct or not it's nevertheless surely your own sexuality is a major part of your personality it's a part of what makes you who you are you know my gay friends my straight friends my i mean i'd, I'd like to say my pederast friends but i don't have any that i know of you know whatever your sex drive is will completely shape not only your experiences in life, which will, you know, in aggregate add up to your personality, but you're, they'll, they'll shape a lot of what you feel, how you relate to the world. Surely that's an unobjectionable point to okay, make. Okay, well, that's a really uh, interesting question. But what I've found, speaking to a lot of older people, older men in particular, is they say the release they feel 
without the sex drive, which you're absolutely right, absorbs and obsesses them, they actually feel better for it. Yes, I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing, but I mean, I, I, what I'm taking issue with is your argument that that it's that sexuality as a notion is kind of irrelevant to someone's true self. Or... Uh, oh, it's utterly relevant to their quote, true self. It just has nothing to do with anybody else. I mean, what is a true self anyway? What well, is if it has nothing to do self? with anybody else, then surely it's, it's exactly relevant to your true self. It's relevant to your selfhood, your personality. Well, your all of these things are very sort world. of modern things. What is a true self? What is your true self? I shall well, ask you a, that it, question. It's a sum of my experiences and memories and my interactions with the world, which, of course, you know, are going inevitably to be shaped by you know who I try to shag and <laughs> succeed in shagging over the course of my life. I mean, I, I, it seems to me that... Well, you know... It's yes, like, absolutely. Do away with the sort of essentialism. Do away with that kind of transcendental idea of... Uh, unitary selfhood because you know all of our neurons are replaced and rewired and of course I you know I'm not I'm not saying there's a sort of nugget of selfhood like a sort of soul that yes, yes, exists exactly. in yeah, isolation that's right. yeah. but you know once you've done away with that transcendental thing your experiences your selfhood is going to be surely constituted by among other things your sexual experiences particularly if there are you know one 18 month period of madness after another I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting because, again, I've spoken to a lot of people and they say when they emerge from that time, they think, oh, my goodness, that's so embarrassing. What was that about? Because obviously I love talking about love. And so I've talked to a lot of people who have been totally obsessed by someone and then it dissipates completely. There's a rather wonderful thing. Um, Wendy Cope, little poem on how to get... Two Cures for Love. Yes, two cures for love, that's absolutely yes, right. Yes, one is don't, don't yes. phone him something or write a letter, cure two, get to know him better. Yes, exactly, that's absolutely right. Or Auden after the kiss yes, comes exactly. the impulse to strangle. Yeah, well, um, that's, that's absolutely right, yeah. No, that, that's absolutely good. I mean, you're very sceptical in the book of what you call social constructivism, the oh, idea that we that. are yes. Oh, yes, of shaped by culture and that what we mistake as natural and essential are, in fact created by culture. But I'm wondering how you square that with your argument in the book that our attitudes to love and sex at the moment, what we think are how love and sex are supposed to be, are an invention of the late 19th and early 20th century. I mean, surely that's an argument for social constructivism itself. Oh, it's our normal. It's a completely your... Well, it's, it's completely, obviously, our normal. It is a social construct which we're living in. And I think, what a very, very sad one. I mean, OK, here's a story. You know, literally last week, I happened to be at a college feast or whatever, and uh, I sit opposite this ravishing woman of, of 24. And I say to her, I met this lovely boy. He's a sweet face. He isn't sexy, but he's, you know, in the obvious sense. But nonetheless, he's worried he can't ask a girl on a date. What would you say to him? She says to me, quite right too. They're never fit enough for my taste. I don't want to be rude and horrid to the boy asking for me a date. I understand it's a sweet thing, but it's embarrassing. Sex is sex, she said. You know, I've got, I love my Tinder. I love seeing the new faces that are there. I love knowing those things. Well, hang on a second. Isn't she then a perfect example of, of someone 
counteracting what you say is this pernicious idea that sex and love are all united and knitted up in the same thing. She's someone who's gone beyond the paradigm that you've been railing against. Well, Isn't I, she to I, be but, applauded? Oh, you know what? I think that's absolutely true, what you say. Sex and love are not connected. She absolutely disconnects sex and love too. I think she's right. However, the consequences of that disconnect are pretty dire. And actually, one of the things that was interesting is that my original motive to write the book was to say, it's so sad because these sort of couples are told if they no longer fancy each other, then the marriage is dead. And I want to say, no, you know, love and liking is so much richer than that. That was my kind of original motive to write the book. But then what I discover when I read actually the literature is all the academics have already got there. They've already said, oh, no, there's absolutely no connect between sex and love. But instead of going for the love bit, which I do, they go for the sex bit. They say the sex drive is overwhelmingly important and we must forget about families and things. And so I was sort of rather taken aback by this because what was my message going to be? And I rather wanted to revert back to say, actually, if you do happen to love, happen to love the person you have sex with, that somehow redeems sex and makes it okay. So the the sex and love being the same thing you're rejecting, the sex being its own thing, your auntie, are you, is, is essentially what we do is just sort of fingers crossed and hope that people happen to fall in love with the people they have sex with. Well, you say fingers crossed. They don't now. It's absolutely pathetic. I mean, one of the questions I love asking people, I used to ask people, is what's your favourite bit of a relationship? Is it the sort of, you know, when you first set eyes on someone waiting for that first kiss? Or is it between the first kiss and the first shag? Now, everyone, men and women, have said the first Waiting for that first kiss is amazing. But now, if you so much as put your hand on someone's knee, you know, you're, you know, the thought police have got it, you know, you're, you're sacked. When is anyone going to have that delicious feeling of, you know, that we all knew, or at least from my childhood, of waiting for that first kiss, which is just extraordinary and sweet? Extraordinary and sweet, but bound up, surely, with sexual feeling. Well, actually, OK, then, here's another confession. My romantic nature is far greater... And perhaps this is because I am a woman. I am a total romantic. Well, you're a man and you might think differently. Perhaps you would have answered that question differently. In fact, I shall ask you that question. Which is your favourite, between the first kiss and the first shag, or between seeing someone and thinking they're rather lovely and that first kiss? Which is your favourite? I think it's the moment when you know you're truly bonded because your wife forgives your cat for peeing on the sofa. <laughs> so that's, that's a real form well, of romanticism. Well, I know I love that. I think <laughs> you're dead right. I think you've got a lucky wife. I should just ask, you know, you've said, you know, I'm a woman, my nature is romantic. How much do you think there is a sort of essential or innate difference? Because you've said, you know, we're all one, our minds between, and our between souls men and women. Between men and women and male sex drives and female sex drives. Well, that is extremely interesting. A really interesting question. Is there? Well, I... You know, if there is this cliché, where do you think the cliché comes from? Because you're very keen in the book to say, you know, we are not our bodies. Our physical embodiment is kind of essentially irrelevant to the, you know human empathy, the Congress of Souls, yes, the I'm kind of thing. You know, you're, you're quite I, a Cartesian I'm afraid I am totally a Cartesian, and I've been blamed. You're right, you're dead right. People say you, the trouble with you is you are a dualist. And I think one of the troubles, uh, actually, if you, if you want a, if a really honest answer on this, is that when I was, um, you know, a young undergraduate at Cambridge, and I was in a male, all-male college, and I was... Um, really pursued, if you like, by all the men. What am I supposed to say to my suitors? Am I supposed to say, 
oh my God, I am just so beautiful. You're dead right to worship me and think that I, you know, you're dead right to do your projections onto me because look at my lovely brown eyes and my blonde hair. Should I be saying, you don't know me? You're just thinking because you fancy me that I am all those things. And so I did think I became a dualist probably then. It was like, what am I supposed to, have I got a beautiful soul? No, my soul is not a whit more beautiful than anyone else's. So you're traumatised into basically Cartesianism. I think that's completely right. And in a way it's been a great, you know, it's been a real, I think that's completely true, actually. I think it's completely true. Well, you're a dualist then. In that case, where does this whether it's a real or whether it's a, you know, kind of projected difference between male and female sexuality come from? Is it from our bodies? Is it from the cultural history of patriarchy? Is it, where, where do you think it comes from? Oh, I, that is too big a question. I have no idea. I know that I talked absolutely... It's worth asking, isn't uh, it? Where, and you say, how, where does it come from? You know, I haven't found anything consistent. But of course, we don't, this, this does remain one of the central questions, is... It's, if our sexuality, you know, you must have at least a, an instinct as to do these differences in our sexualities, are they simply constructed by generations and generations of social history that have shaped the way we are taught to relate to each other, or are they innate? I mean, go on, uh, flip a coin, which they're is also... I mean, it's quite so, funny. So, so your moment, romanticism moment... could not be something to do with your female No, I don't think so. You know, I've suffered from being a romantic... That's who I am. You know, I can't help it, which is in a way, so I'm writing my book also slightly against myself, teasing myself and saying, look, you you hoped for all these things because you saw this handsome face across the room and then you were disappointed. We're all destined to be disappointed. (laughs) Olivia Fane, thank you very much for your time. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. 